Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up with me to to John chapter 2. Happy to uh, resume our study uh, of the fourth gospel this morning. And uh, You might have heard it said that uh, Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. It's a popular saying in a, uh, our day, and, and there is some truth to it. Uh, but I also feel that it, it unnecessarily gives religion a... Uh, a negative connotation. The Bible does not treat uh, religion in this way, and, and nor should we. And, and the Bible actually teaches a religion, uh, a religion that is uh, commendable, and it's a, a religion that is based upon a relationship. But how do I know that? Well, because James one twenty seven speaks about true religion. And by speaking about true religion, he nat- naturally divides it from false religion. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And like I said, to a certain extent, James divides all religion into two categories, good, pure and undefiled religion, and the bad, which would be, just by nature of the opposite, defiled and impure. And if James speaks of religion in this way, I think we need to maybe classify our terms a little bit better than we say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I would say it's both, and I, but I understand what they mean when they say religion. Uh, and I would say that, or suggest that we should replace that word religion with another R word, ritualism. Uh, and, and that, I think, is more what people mean when they say religion in that context. See, ritualism uh, is performance-based. It's all based upon your efforts, your accomplishments, what you do. Say a certain number of prayers, travel to a certain city on a a pilgrimage, go and isolate yourself uh, on a a mountaintop and and meditate to seek enlightenment. And religions built upon ritualism ultimately base everything upon you your salvation your your enlightenment is based upon all that you do your works your efforts but the christian religion the one that we see in scripture is based upon relationship how we relate to god the father is through his son jesus christ and we do that in the power of the holy spirit who now dwells within us if we believe in christ and while the, the Christian religion is based upon this relationship, our, our natural tendency as human beings is to turn anything and everything into ritualism. Okay. And that is, that's our default. That's our, our sin nature. We want it to depend upon us. We want to turn things from relationship into ritualism. And what, what happens when we do that in our relationship with God? When we take the relationship that we have with him and turn it into ritualism. When it just becomes based upon things that we do. It feels like we're on that hamster wheel. It feels like we can never do enough. And, and ultimately that ritualism robs us of any and all joy in our relationship. That's what ritualism does. 
It weighs heavy upon us and it burdens us because it's a heavy list of do's and do nots. And that burden squashes our desire for God. His word squashes our desire to be with his people. When you're in a a, a ritualism and uh, a ritualism pattern, you're afraid to come near to God. You don't want to be around his people because uh, they'll you feel like they'll be judging you all of the time. And you don't want to approach his word because you feel like you fall far short of everything that it calls you to do and to be. But true Christian religion, based upon relationship with God, is different. And as we come this morning to John chapter 2, we're going to see and be introduced to the world of of Jewish ritualism that, that Jesus was coming into. The world that he was coming to, uh, to overthrow. Jesus was coming to transform Jewish ritualism and to, to bring something far greater to replace it with. Relationship with God the Father through him. And the ministry of Christ was intended to call the Jewish people out of their ritualism, out of this, just this habit of going and offering sacrifices, of, of doing ceremonial cleansing, of doing all of these things and calling this people, God's people who had the word of God into right relationship with God. Back to what it was originally intended to be. What Jesus is calling them to is a is a religion based upon relationship with God through Jesus as the Messiah that they had long awaited for. And what we're going to read today in John chapter 2, this is the first of his miraculous signs that he is going to perform in this Gospel of John. I want you to read with me in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
what we see in this passage, as it mentions, the, the first of his signs, literally the beginning of signs. And it records the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, although it's not so public, as we will see. But it's the first of the miracles, the signs that he performs, and it shows us how he slowly begins to reveal who he is and what he has come to do to his disciples. And yet this is not merely a revelation of Jesus' power. This is not merely just Jesus saying, look what I can do. Let me show off some of my skills. It's nothing less than that, but it's also a lot more. Every miracle that Jesus uh, demonstrates, every, every miracle that he performs had a reason and a purpose, a message to it. And so whenever we encounter uh, one of the miracles of Jesus in one of the four Gospels, we have to ask, why this miracle? What is he trying to say by performing this action in this situation? And as we look at this miracle today, we'll see that it points to the greater transformation and abundance that are to be found in Jesus rather than in the ritualism that the Jews had fallen into. There is far greater joy, far greater satisfaction, far greater abundance to be found in him than what they were currently enslaved to. And as we look at this passage uh, together this morning, the Apostle John tells us what happens. He he tells us of the performance of the sign in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then in verse 11, he tells us why it's significant, why it's important. Uh, and that's what we're going to kind of look at, so the, be, be front-heavy of walking through this story of what does Jesus do? And then why is it significant in his time, and why is it still significant now for us as Christians? That's what we'll look at in the second part of our study this morning. But look with me first uh, at the performance of the sign in verses 1 through 10. We can further divide up this, this performance of the sign into four smaller scenes or four smaller sections. Uh, And the first scene is in verses 1 and 2. We could call this the setting for the sign. Look with me again at those verses. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And what this does, it provides us with some background information. It tells us when it took place on the third day. Well, what is that in reference to? If you just look backwards at the, the first line in each paragraph in, at the end of chapter 1, you see that, that what John is doing is he's laying out the first week of Jesus' ministry. You'll see this pattern of, okay, the next day, then the next day, then the next day, and then the, on the third day. So it, this is a time-bound miracle. John wants us to understand when it took place. We also see where it took place at a wedding in Cana, of Galilee. And we don't exactly know where Cana is. Uh, we think that there's, a, there's a, a set of village ruins about nine miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And that's the, the likely location for Cana. And that is probably why he was at this wedding. Additionally, we see that Nathaniel, the, the man who just came to faith at the end of chapter 1, his hometown is Cana. We see that connection as well. And then we also see, so we see when this event took place, where it took place. We also see who is at this wedding. And John goes out of his way to to identify some people. 
first identifies the mother of Jesus, Mary. Then he identifies that Jesus is at this wedding. And then the, the, the disciples of Jesus are at this wedding. And the fact that Mary is mentioned first, and then Jesus, probably indicates that this might have been the wedding of a family friend or a close relative. Now, if, if Mary's there, if Jesus is there, if these other disciples are there, and when he says the disciples of Jesus, he's referring to the five that we saw come to follow Jesus in chapter 1. Andrew, Peter... Philip, Nathaniel, and then an unnamed disciple who is more than likely the Apostle John who's writing these things to us. What's also interesting to know is who's not mentioned already. And that's Joseph, the husband of Mary. And his absence here, again, indicates that he had already passed away into eternity. He's no longer alive during the ministry of Christ. But, but John sets forth the setting of this sign that Jesus is going to perform. Ado, a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, making it obvious who is there, and then binding it in time. This is in close succession to when Jesus first announced himself and was first identified by John the Baptist as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, like any good story, what we see here is the setting, and then we begin to see what the problem is. What is it that needs to be solved? Something goes wrong at the wedding, and we see this, the need for intervention, this second scene in verses 3 through 5. It says, when the wine ran out. And see, that's the problem right there. The wine ran out at a wedding. And in ancient Israel, when it came to weddings, there was a, a feeling and a cultural value of reciprocity. Uh, in essence of uh, the, the bridegroom was responsible to, to pay for a feast for the guests. What do guests usually bring to a wedding? Gifts. Uh, well, and in, in return for those gifts, the bridegroom had the responsibility of paying for uh, a, an adequate feast for his wedding guests, which would be pretty expensive, as, as you would imagine. And in fact, there was a legal obligation on the part of the bridegroom. It wasn't just a cultural value. But it was an obligation for the man who was going to be married. And so, to run out of wine at a wedding, and weddings in those days uh, lasted for typically a week. It was a week-long celebration. It wasn't just an afternoon or a day. It was a week-long celebration that the bridegroom was had to, I guess, provide for his guests. And so, to for him to run out of wine, sometime over the course of that week of celebration would have not only been a social embarrassment, but it would have been something that opened him up to a legal action, maybe from the, the bride's relatives. So, hey, we've, we've given these gifts to you, we've provided these things for you, and you haven't given us the feast that we deserve. So this was a, a difficult situation that the bridegroom was suddenly in. It says, when the wine ran out. Then we see the mother of Jesus. And it's interesting that, that John never calls her by her name, Mary. Not, not sure why that is. It could just be that uh, there's two other Marys in the Gospel of John that he doesn't want to confuse her with. But he never, he never mentions his own name and he never mentions the name of Jesus' mother, Mary. But the wine runs out and Mary comes to her son. 
And she feels compelled to do this, probably because if this was a wedding of a, of a close friend, she might have been involved in the catering and the serving. So it's probably within her realm of responsibility to some degree or another that when the Rhine runs out, I have to alert somebody. I have to, to try and remedy this situation for the bridegroom. So Mary comes to Jesus. And she simply says to him, they have no wine. And then Jesus responds to his mother. And I could almost hear some chuckles as I read this the first time. And it's an interesting, uh, in our English, the way that Jesus responds to his mother, woman, uh, we tend to think of that with a negative connotation. Uh, and it's, it sounds a lot more harsh in the English than it actually is in the Greek. Uh, it, it's not a... Uh, the usual polite in, in term of endearment from a, a son to his mother. Uh, and, and what it does is it serves to create a kind of distinction. Now, you could say it's a, it's a polite distance. Uh, that's the type of term that it is. Uh, and it might be that he's indicating if, that there's been a change in their relationship. It's not uh, what they once were. Jesus has transitioned from focusing on being the son of Mary to focusing upon doing the will of his heavenly father. That seems to be the emphasis when he says, woman, yeah, not as cold, and in no way is it disrespectful. In fact, he uses the same word when he's on the cross in John chapter 19. And he's speaking to the apostle John, and he's entrusting his mother into the care of the apostle. He says, woman, behold your son. So it's a, it's a polite term in no way disrespectful. And he, he gives this saying, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And it's kind of a, an English translation of a, of a Hebrew saying. And literally in the Hebrew, uh, it's a coming, kind of coming from the Old Testament and translated into Greek. But the idea is, what, what do you and I have in common? And with regards to this situation, you're bringing this to me. Why does this matter to you and me? Why should I be concerned with this? And this, Jesus' response to his mother here, it's, it's a little bit of a rebuke. And I think the implication is that Jesus can't act and operate according to her timeline. Jesus is now acting according to the timeline of God the Father, according to God's will. And he doesn't want to be forced publicly into doing something he's not quite yet ready to do. And he gives her an explanation. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And as soon as he says that, my hour has not yet come, we can kind of deduct a couple of things. Number one, he has an hour. Uh, and usually when he uses that term, he's referring to his crucifixion. But I think here it's referring more to his, uh, I guess, uh, public declaration coming out and publicly uh, to everybody identifying as the Messiah and performing miracles. He says, my time has not yet come. But it also creates an anticipation. If he says, my time has not yet come, it kind of indicates that it will come some point in the future, which makes us as the reader begin to say, okay, when, when is that going to take place? What's going to happen? And it's interesting of Mary comes to Jesus with this request Hey, or just kind of stating the obvious of, hey, they, they ran out of wine. That's not going to be good. And then Jesus initially responds with a, a slight rebuke. And then Mary turns and acts like he's still going to respond. 
It's like, like any good mother, when her adult son doesn't do what she wants, what, is, what does a good mother do? She pushes. <laughs> so just to the servants, okay, do, do whatever he tells you to do. And notice she, she probably at this point in time doesn't even think that Jesus is going to perform a miracle. Jesus has never performed a miracle prior to this. So she may not have a frame of reference to say he's going to miraculously create wine. She's not thinking along those terms. She's just going to her son for help. Hey, Jesus, you're, you're a resourceful guy. Help me in this situation. And she would have become ever more dependent upon him as a widow. Her husband was gone. Now she depends more and more upon her adult son. So she says, in faith, trusting in him to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. And so we see this interaction between Mary and her son Jesus. And then kind of shift to to the next scene in the story. Verses 6 through 8, the details of the sign. And notice John doesn't immediately tell us what Jesus is going to do. Kind of sets up a little bit of a cliffhanger. Not sure if Jesus is going to respond to his mother's request, but verse 6, he says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So our our attention is immediately drawn to these these six stone water jars. And notice the, the specificity there. There's six of them. They're made out of stone. And they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And each one of them would hold about 20 or 30 gallons. And these were were probably used by some of the wedding guests and wedding servants as they came in. As These would be used to, to clean utensils, maybe for the, the wedding guests to, to wash their hands and all the way up to their, their elbows prior to, to entering in and partaking of the festivities. And so we're, we're drawn to see these these six stone jars. And then John brings us back to Jesus. And we see uh, what he's going to do. We were left with this cliffhanger. And if we, if we pause, just we know what he's going to do because we've read it. But pause for a brief second and think about this predicament that Jesus is in. Okay, his mother has come up and, and made a request to him. But he also knows it's not time for him to reveal himself in this public of a way. But he also knows and feels the need to help the bridegroom, whom he probably knows. Again, of understanding the situation this bridegroom is in, not only of facing social shame, but possibly legal action. This is a dire situation, and the bridegroom probably doesn't even realize it. And the solution is for Jesus to perform a quiet miracle. That's what he chooses to do. A miracle that's in the background. That's not going to be announced to everyone. One that would only be seen and provide for the needs of the married couple. But it's quite the miracle nevertheless. 
And some of you might be confused by Jesus' decision to act here. I know initially when I read this as a young believer, why does Jesus say one thing? Why does he say no and then answer yes later? And he does that elsewhere in this gospel as well. Matthew chapter 7, his brothers uh, told him to go up to the feast and reveal himself to all of Israel. But, but Jesus responds by saying, it's not yet my time. And then, after saying, hey, it's not my time to go up to the feast, he goes up to the feast privately. And you say, well, why, why is he doing that? Well, each time Jesus does that, each time he says, it's not my time, I, I don't need to do that, it's because someone's coming up urging him to do something, and they're misunderstanding the divine timeline, what Jesus is sent to accomplish. That's what we see here and again elsewhere. And so Jesus instructs the servants. He decides that he will act. And his directions are pretty simple. Hey, just go fill the jars with water. And what do they do? They, they fill it all the way up to the brim, not allowing for anything else to be added in. This wasn't a you know, diluted you know, from concentrate wine packet uh, that was added in later. This was all the way up to the brim. Nothing else that could be added to these enormous stone water jars. He says, fill them up and then take them, just, or dip some out and take it to the master of the feast. Take it to the head waiter. Again, noticing what a, Jesus told them to do that, in essence, to kind of keep it quiet. He could have said, yeah, go do it and then go trumpet it to everybody. There's more wine. You thought we ran out, but Jesus made some for us. Even the way that he conducts himself and the instructions that he gives to the servants is intended to keep this a quiet miracle. And he sends them to the head waiter, sends them to the master of the feast in order for him to be able to confirm what had taken place. That a miracle, a sign had indeed happened. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now and it's interesting that that we're not clearly told that the water had been miraculously transformed until this verse. Well, we're not told that. And even then it's kind of mentioned as a, as a side point. The water that had become wine. And the servants who bring this water that they had dipped out, this water that had become wine, they knew where it had come from. It come from the, the purification jars. But who didn't know? The head waiter. And the implication is, if he had known, he never would have tried that water. That would have been unthinkable for a Jew to drink out of the, the jars that were used for purification. So those are ceremonially clean. Those have a specific purpose. I can't drink out of that. But notice the evaluation of the head waiter. Not knowing where the wine comes from, he immediately summons the bridegroom. And it's interesting that we never hear a word from the bridegroom. This is a, a thing. But the head waiter speaks to him to compliment him. And the emphasis now is on the quality of the wine that was produced. 
of what is it that Jesus did in this miracle. And the head waiter says, this is the best wine I've ever had. If he's saying, by contrast, this wine that you've now brought out is better than the wine that you initially had, and you initially bring out your best, this is the best of the best. Jesus just made the best wine in all of Israel like that. That's the implication. The quality was superb and the quantity of wine. He made anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it wasn't grape juice. So you just have to, have to add that. It was, it was wine. And, and wine at, uh, in ancient Israel was made really strong and then diluted with water. Jesus made wine. Transformed water into wine. And John emphasizes both the quality and the quantity of this miracle. Because it... It matches the other way that, that John describes the miracles of Christ in this gospel. He's going to point out, hey, Jesus does these miracles, and they're not just normal miracles. As if that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Uh, but these are spectacular miracles. Jesus doesn't just turn it into wine. He turns it into the best wine. Later on in chapter 2, Jesus is going to say that he's going to, to raise the temple, which took 46 years to build. He's going to do it in just three days. He's speaking of himself. When he heals the royal, the son of a royal official, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is going to do it from a great distance without ever looking at this son. He's just going to speak and the boy is going to be healed. Chapter 5, Jesus is going to heal a lame man, but not just any lame man, a man who had been lame for 38 years. In chapter 6, when he feeds 5,000 people, he does so with only two fish and five small loaves of bread. And to feed that number of people, even just a bite of food, it would have taken eight months to earn enough money to do that. And Jesus does it from that small amount. Chapter 9, he gives sight to a blind man, but not just again any blind man, a man who was born blind. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Not like moments after he died, but it makes sure that, no, no, four days later, and the traditional Jewish understanding is you start to smell as a dead person after three days. So Jesus waited one more day to make sure, hey, Lazarus was good and dead. These are, these are the, the miracles that, that John has chosen, the signs that he's chosen to articulate and communicate truths about Jesus. And as we, as we began our study of John, I, I taught from the end of John, John chapter 20, which explains the, the purpose of the gospel, that John wants us to, to see Jesus for who he is and to believe in Jesus. He says, I've chosen these signs, but if I wrote to you everything that Jesus did, not, not even all of the books in the world could contain them. So John has chosen each of these signs for a reason. And so again, we have to ask, if, if he's chosen these for a reason, then why did he choose this one? It's difficult to immediately understand why this is significant. Why is this miracle important? And we see this in verse 11. Now the, 
the significance of this sign. Where John writes, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. What's interesting is that in, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, when speaking of the, the power that Jesus demonstrates uh, in, in what he does, they, all, they always use this word uh, dunamis, which is where we get our, our English word for dynamite. And Jesus has this power and this, this demonstration of Jesus' power in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet, in the Gospel of John... The Apostle John uses a different word all the time to speak of the, the miracles that Jesus performs. He uses this word for signs. And what does the sign do? It points to something else. The sign isn't the big deal. A sign is something that, that tells you information. It points you where you need to go. And when John uses this term of signs, he's, he's seeking to point us to read beyond the miracle itself and to show how God is at work. D.A. Carson explains the signs in John's gospel as significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. Or you can put it another way, when we see a miracle performed by Jesus in this gospel, we should realize that that act of power is intended to point us to something else. The miracle points us and teaches us something about Jesus. In verse 11, we see three clear observations that we can make about this miracle, of why it's significant. John gives some to us. This, number one, is the first of his signs. I mean, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. Why is that significant? Well, there are a whole lot of other Gospels, and I have air quotes uh, in the air, that came out in the second century. And those Gospels, what they tried to do is they tried to explain uh, parts of Jesus' life that we don't have information about, which is most notably his childhood. Uh, because we have the account of Jesus' birth, we have him in the temple when he's 12, and that's it. And he bursts back onto the scene when he's 30. So there were these other quote, gospel accounts that came out in the second century, obviously without apostolic eyewitness. And, and they, they tried to, to teach that Jesus did certain things as a child, that he you know, took clay pigeons and made them into real birds. Other, other miracles like that. But this clearly contradicts all of that. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. This is the first of the greater things that he promised to Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 51, where he said, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Verse 50, you will see greater things than these. And the statement that this was the, the first of these signs the, immediately helps us to discern what what's the, the true Gospels are. And which ones are false? So this is significant because it was the first of his signs. And secondly, this miracle is significant because it manifested his glory. And as I mentioned before, the, the prologue of this, 
of the gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 introduces us to everything that we need to know. Everything that Jesus is, uh, we need to know about Jesus and what's going to be fleshed out in the remainder of the book is we see in the prologue. And what we see, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And every one of Jesus' signs reveal His glory. Reveals who He is. What He came to do. Carrying out this. Additionally, it manifested His glory and then His disciples believed in Him. That's, That's the purpose of His miracles. His disciples behold who He is and the natural response is now to to believe in Him. That's what we are all called to do. That's what we saw in John chapter 1. To behold who He is, to believe in Him, and then to follow. That's what we are all called to do. And these are the three things that are clearly stated by John about the significance of this particular sign, the beginning of Jesus' signs. But there's also more to this. There's more to this than just what John says in verse 11. As I already mentioned, whenever we we look at a sign, we, we see the character of Christ is revealed. Who he is and what he does. So there's some some additional things that I think we should take note here. We've looked at what is clearly stated now. I think we should look at what is implied in this miracle. Number one, say this is a this is a private miracle for Jesus' disciples. This is an important truth that we're going to see for the remainder of the gospel, that Jesus reveals himself to some but not to everybody. That he shows his glory to some. And he chose for this to be a a quiet secret miracle, so to speak. The only ones who would have known would have been the mother of Jesus the master of the banquet, the servants, the bridegroom, as he realized, I didn't bring this wine, and Jesus' disciples. Other than that, none of the wedding guests knew what had taken place. It was intended to be a private miracle for his disciples. But then also this. Secondly, an implied significance of this disciple, of, of this sign, is that This is a picture of Jesus beginning the age of the Messiah. As as I talked about earlier, Jesus is coming into Israel. And Israel right now is bound up in ritualism. Bound up in the the do's and don'ts of what God had, had told them. And they've become so wrapped up in this that they've forgotten the relationship that they have with God. But that's all going to change when Jesus comes. And there's a reason that this is the first miracle that Jesus performs. Again, we've got to ask that. Why, Jesus, of all the miracles that you could have done to announce who you were, why this one? Why this one first? Well, because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and the age that the Messiah would bring, The Messiah was going to transform the world and transform society. And one of the pictures that was used to describe what would happen when the Messiah came is heard 
In Amos 9, verses 13 and 14, listen. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. This was the, the first miracle that Jesus performed. And it's, it's announcing that he is the Messiah. And what was prophesied of what would happen in the, the time of the Messiah? What would flow freely in the land? Wine. That would be a blessing upon God's people. So this is naturally the first miracle that Jesus performs announcing that the age of the Messiah has come and begun. Additionally, this is a picture of how Jesus transforms ritualism into relationship. You say, how is that? Well, again, just by asking some questions of why did Jesus do it this way? So you think of all of the things that would have been there at the wedding. Of all of the things there, why did he choose Jewish purification jars? Why did, he, why did he gravitate to those and say, hey, I'm going to use these? Why did he choose those vessels? He could have chosen any vessel at the wedding. You know there's already stuff that holds wine because they had a whole bunch of wine there. Or he could have just said, okay, I'm going to use my power to just keep every wine glass full throughout the rest of the week. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to, to use these ritualistic vessels. And what does he do with these, with these vessels that were used to hold water and, and, and do all of these rituals, these cleansing, these washings? What does he do? He puts something new in it. Something greater. And as we, as we read in, in Mark chapter 2 today, Jesus also often uses this, this type of imagery, right? Of wine. Jesus is bringing a new wine. You can't put it in the old wineskins because it'll burst. You've got to have new wineskins. Jesus doesn't fit in with the old ritualistic ways of the Jews. Something new has come. And in doing this, he's showing that he is transforming what used to be into something that is quantitatively and qualitatively better. Okay? That is what we see, Jesus transforming old ritual into new relationship. And fourthly, let's say that what we see in this miracle, in this sign, what it points to is a picture of the joy Jesus brings to the believer. See, what's amazing is when you, when you understand that in the Old Testament, wine was used as a symbol of joy celebration, blessing. And then Jesus is at a, at a wedding, and, and what happens? There's no wine. What does that point to? What, what does it demonstrate about the state of Israel, about the state that Jesus is coming into? And, and as Jesus enters in and provides wine, he's bringing joy. 
to his people. The rabbis said that without wine there is no joy. The Old Testament Ecclesiastes 10.19 says that bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. (laughs) And money answers everything. Proverbs 3.10 says, Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Psalm 104.15, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Everywhere in the Old Testament, wine is used as a symbol of blessing, prosperity, and joy. Not, not drunkenness. Drunkenness is always encouraged and identified as, as foolishness and, and sin. But wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy. So what does it point to here? What do we see? As we put all this together, we begin to see what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, what he's trying to communicate to us. Of where is our, our deepest joy and satisfaction to be found? It's not found in ritualism. And again, what's our natural tendency? To take anything and everything... Make it ritualistic. What's, what's amazing is if you, if you go to the, the Christian quarter in Jerusalem and go to where they believe that Christ was, uh, was buried in the tomb, and there's a, a church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you have thousands of people coming in and visiting this place, this empty tomb that's intended to symbolize life. And what they do is they, they come and they... They've made it a ritual, coming, bowing down, kissing it. That's our natural tendency. And all of us can make rituals out of even good things in the Christian life. What type of rituals have you uh, made or out of good things that God has commanded us to do? Transformed it into ritualism, into something that has probably robbed you of joy, and exhausted you, again, put you on a, a hamster wheel, always trying to earn God's favor. But what we see here, and what Jesus does, is that he is the source of joy. He provides joy to his people. And it's a greater joy than anything else in this world can give. And it's a joy that comes through relationship with him rather than just cold ritualism. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh pastor who preached in London for a good portion of the 20th century, says that the key to understanding the Gospel of John is actually understanding John chapter 1, verse 16. If you want to turn over there with me. It says, For from His fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. And what we, what we see as Jesus comes is this, this transformation that we are to find our satisfaction, our joy in Him. We are to receive fullness from Him because out of Him flows grace upon grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the church cannot live on activities, on her own efforts and organizations. She has been trying to do so, but it does not work. 
the great question that all of us should be concerned about is this. Do I know that I have received his fullness? Is it my greatest desire, my highest ambition to receive more and more of him? That is what this miracle points us to. That who we are, our satisfaction, should be found in Christ rather than in anything else. He provides joy. Not ritualism, not going through the motions or doing things, but running to Him. Teaches us that He is the Messiah that we should look to and depend upon. And all of our ritualism, again, will, will just rob us of joy. If we desire joy, if we desire meaning and satisfaction in life, He is the one that we are called to look to. That's what this miracle points us to, just like other miracles will show us Spiritual blindness, that, that He's the bread of life, that we are to depend upon Him at all times. But here we see what we are to pursue. And Jesus is the one that we must pursue. Not, not through ritualistic tendencies, not, not through all of these things, not through all of these works, but just simply running to Him as a relationship. That's what we are called to do. And do we do that? Do we have that mindset of approaching Him in relationship? Not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of who He is and all that He provides for us. If we desire joy, it's to be found most deeply in a personal relationship with Christ. And as such, if you want joy, you must know Him and relate to Him rightly. And may that be our ambition and our goal today and beyond. Not turning back to ritualism, but running to him in relationship. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we come to you, thanking you, praising you, for all that you are. Lord, we see that that you are one who who is concerned about our everyday life, our everyday concerns, what we worry about, where we find joy, satisfaction, happiness. Lord, we thank you that happiness is not going to be found through our own efforts and energy. We thank you that true joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of knowing and relating rightly to Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts, transform our minds. Lord, help us to turn away from ritualism. And help us run to our Savior in relationship. Knowing that we can run to Him. Knowing that He is able to transform. He's able to work in our hearts, in our minds. To bring about transformation in our lives. Even as He brought about transformation in this miracle that we saw today. Lord, help us to see and behold Jesus for who He is. 
And may we look to him as our ultimate and final source of joy and satisfaction in this life. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.